Well, um, good morning, church family. What an honor it is to be able to serve you this morning. I know that we have a lot of um, new families um, here. So um, like they've said, my name is um, Monica Carey. Um, I'm on staff here and I wear a couple different hats. One of them being that I um, coordinate the life groups. So whether you're new or whether you've been here for a while and you want to get plugged into one of our amazing life groups, I would love to chat with you about that. And also, uh, another hat that I wear is that um, I help lead um, our women's ministry called Serious Coffee that meets here on Wednesday morning. So, yeah. <laughs> so to the ladies in the house, if you want, an, uh, you want to meet some awesome women and you want to celebrate the name of Jesus, come on a Wednesday morning. We would love to have you. So I'm married to my Kiwi husband, Peter. Um, we have two adult daughters called Mallory and Shannon. And we have a dog called Cooper, who's like my beloved son. He is. The son I never had, but that's us. So let me pray for us. Oh, God, thank you so much for your presence here. And God, my prayer is that you would wake us up to your presence, that you would wake us up to the presence of the living God who is among us, speaking and healing and moving and freeing and redeeming and liberating. So this morning, God, do it again. Holy Spirit, breathe Breathe fresh on this word this morning. It's challenging and it's hard, but God, speak. God, I pray that you would hide my flesh behind the cross and that people would only see you. We love you and we honor you. So God, have your way, have your way, have your way. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. amen. <clears throat> so if you've been tracking with us, we are continuing our series, Prodigal Church, based on a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And just to recap real quick, what we've covered so far, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to Corinth, and the Apostle Paul plants this church in Corinth, and he stays there for about 18 months or so, preaching and teaching and serving, pastoring, guiding, um, loving these new Christ followers who are primarily Gentiles, not Jews. And he's been teaching them the ways of Jesus. And they're living in Corinth, a city that was up and coming, a boom town where anything goes. Like what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And I keep referring it to the Las Vegas of its day, but it's actually not too far removed from our culture today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Paul has been deeply invested in this church. He's been like a father to the Corinthians. And Paul then leaves Corinth to plant more churches. And in his absence, though, the church in Corinth starts splitting into all sorts of different factions and divisions and in-house fighting one of them being over whose teaching they prefer more. So there were some that were team Apollos and some that are team Peter and some that are team Paul. And um, they preferred the teachings of either Peter or Apollos much more than the preaching of Paul. And they started criticizing and judging Paul for his leadership um, and his teaching style and for not being enough like the other two. And the church is breaking apart and living just like the culture around them. And Paul hears what's going on, and he writes them a letter for, in fact, two of which we have, First and Second Corinthians, to try and untangle the many problems and issues in this church gone wild. And I can just picture the buzz amongst the Corinthians when this letter arrives. Remember, this letter would have been read, out, read aloud in one sitting. 
Well, we're not going to do that this morning. <laughs> we're going to take right till, de till December to get through this letter. But I have no doubt that there would have been much squirming in pews or seats or however they did it as this letter is read out because Paul means business. And like Craig said last week, that chapter breaks were not a part of Paul's original letter. He flows from one thought to the next, and in chapter 4, he opens with so, or so then, pointing um, backwards, reiterating the point that he's just made in chapter 3, verse 5, when he says, so what is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants. Paul's point is that leaders are servants, and that leaders exist to serve the church, not the other way around, not the church to serve leaders. And in today's chapter, Paul is going to address how the church in Corinth and the church in general understands, approaches, and views their spiritual leaders. And in 1 Corinthians 4, um, verses 1 through 5 says this, and it's Paul speaking. He says, so, so then look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who's put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I am evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring out our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. So Paul starts off by saying, so look at Apollos and, and me as servants of Christ. And the word for servants here is really specific here in the Greek. It's the word huperites, which means slaves inside a Greco-Roman household. And then Paul says, think of us as slaves and managers, and some of your translations may say stewards, um, who have been entrusted. Now, the Greek word for steward-manager is also real specific that Paul uses, and it's the Greek word oikonomos, which means a slave in charge of an entire household in the master's absence. Now, a couple things that you need to understand about slavery and the imagery that Paul is building from in the first century. So in the New Testament, don't think of slavery in recent Western European history or the African-American slave trade, though there are some parallels. But in Paul's day, in Greco-Roman society, slaves were often well-educated or well-off. Slaves, yes, but not how we think of them today. And when you read about households in the New Testament, don't think of your house in the burbs or in the suburbs. Households were only for the super wealthy. And your household was everything connected to your house. Um, your property, your crops, your fields, your investments, your businesses, your servants, your family, your children. Your household was your entire enterprise. And masters of these households were often gone for long periods of time. They didn't have modern forms of travel. So if you were going to visit, let's say, Rome, sometimes you were gone for a year or two at a time. And without modern technology, there's no email, no cell phones, no landlines, no Zoom sessions. Um, there was no way to communicate back and forth except through a letter. That took a long time. Which means that you left those entrusted your stewards, your managers, your iconomas um, in charge while you were gone. And so what Paul is trying to say is that as a pastor or a spiritual leader of someone else, it's my job to manage someone else's property. 
The church is God's house, not Paul's house, not Apollo's house. Um, and I am God's representative as a manager of his house. Now, this is a great reminder, not only for those who are leaders, but for all of us, because Paul switches pronouns to include us all. We are all servants of Christ. We all have been entrusted with the gospel. We all have a sphere of influence to those around us. And like it or not, we are leading in some capacity, maybe unbeknownst to you, but you are. And again, that's not only for pastors and leaders, but life group leaders, youth leaders, phase leaders, preschool leaders, parents, grandparents, mentors, or anyone who has discipled and poured into your life or who you are walking alongside discipling and pouring into. So the category here is much broader than just preachers towards the church body, although it's that too. Paul is saying that he and Apollos are not celebrity preachers either. They are servants of Christ. And he goes on to build the analogy and he says in verse two, now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. I love that. Some of your Bible translations say trustworthy. You need someone who you can trust who is reliable, not going to flake out, not walk away. Someone who is there day in, day out, honest and good. You need someone who is faithful. And again, that is true for all of us as servants of Christ. God is requiring us to simply be faithful servants of him. And I love that. I don't need to be brilliant. I don't need to be funny or charming or good looking or entertaining. None of that is on God's list. He is simply asking you and I to be faithful to what he's given you and to be faithful to those he has put around you. And in verse 3, Paul says, As for me, <laughs> it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. What a statement. <laughs> in other words, as for me, it matters very little what you think of me. Now try that on for size. Turn to the person next to you and say, As for me. It matters very little what you think of me. <laughs> yeah. See how that goes down. Listen, the point that Paul is trying to make in these verses is that he needs to be more concerned with God's judgment of him than the church's judgment of him. And that doesn't mean leaders aren't accountable. But... and. And the reason that Paul gives is really important, and the only way I know how to explain this is with the sports analogy. <laughs> because you know, if you know me well, you know I love sports, especially American sports. So I've been in mourning since the whole COVID thing hit. I have. This is Mitchell Trubisky. Now, Mitchell Trubisky is a quarterback of the Chicago Bears, and his second season in the NFL went way better than his first season when he was just a rookie, the new guy on the team. Like, dramatically different, dramatically better. And when the year was over, some reporters in Chicago asked him in an interview why he thought he had such an improvement from, one, from year one to year two. And he answered straight away. And the answer was so unexpected because you would think he would say, well, year one, I had this coach, but he was fired. And in year two, I got this new coach, and this coach helped me to take my game to new heights. You'd think he'd say that, but that's not what he said. You'd also think he'd say, well, the first year was my rookie year, and everything was just really new, like playing with new teammates and learning a new playbook. But in the second year, I was just more familiar with everything. That's why I improved. But he didn't say that either. 
When Trubisky was asked, what made you dramatically improve from one year to the next? He said, I stopped reading social media. Can you believe that? He goes, I stopped reading people's opinions of me on Twitter. I stopped listening to local radio stations where the fans would call in and give their feedback on how I was playing. I stopped reading articles about myself in the Chicago Tribune newspaper or on ESPN.com. I remember this, how the sportscasters went nuts when he asked for the TVs, TVs to be turned off in the locker room. And this guy is the quarterback of the Chicago Bears, the, like the fans are... Yeah, this guy's the quarterback of the Chicago Bears. And in many ways, he's like the quarterback of the city. Kind of like when Richie McCall was captain. He was like the New Zealand's captain. And there are no Chicago Bears without the fans. Now, the Bear fans may have a good and right perspective on this quarterback's level of play, on whether or not he has played um, really well or played poorly. But... If he is constantly listening to the fans after every good game, what's going to happen to this guy? His confidence is going to swell. He's going to get cocky and maybe not play as well in the long run that he could have. But if he's constantly listening to the fans after every bad game, what's going to happen to this guy? <laughs> His confidence is going to shrink and he's going to become more timid on the field and not take those needed risks to throw those Hail Mary football passes across the field. Now, Hail Mary passes when a quarterback throws a crazy pass and he just starts to pray Hail Mary for the grace, hoping that the receiver will catch it. So that's what it is. But if he focuses on the negative, he won't play as well. So Trubisky decided he was only going to listen to the coach because he is the ultimate authority. He is the one I report to. I want um, his judgment and his opinion of how I'm playing the game to guide me in what I do. And it's kind of sort of like what I think Paul is trying to say. The church in Corinth has been judging Paul's work, and they've been pretty negative about how he was doing. They didn't think he preached as well as others. They didn't think he was as charismatic of a leader as the others they knew. They didn't think he was the best teacher. And Paul's like, I've kind of put up with a measure of this, and I've put up with it because I'm a servant of yours. I'm here to serve you, but I'm primarily not accountable to your opinions. I'm accountable to God. I'm not going to allow your judgments and opinions and critiques of me to shake me. I'm going to let God's judgment in me do that. And then he says something so interesting. He says, I don't even judge myself. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. Now, important truth to grab hold of here is that Paul is saying that as a spiritual leader, sometimes I am not separated enough from what I'm doing to have an honest assessment of myself or whether or not I'm doing a good job or not. And I think if we're looking at this at, at our lives, that you might say something similar about yourself. Sometimes we can be so enmeshed um, in your role as a parent or so enmeshed in your job or your career. And unless you're getting constant feedback from your boss or your, those in authority over you, you might be going, I think I'm doing a good job. You could be so close to what you're doing that it's hard to tell if you're doing a good job or not or not um, have a clear assessment of yourself. Now, there, in church life, there's so many metrics that a church will use to look at to say, 
how is the church going? And people might look at attendance numbers or um, point to the giving or how many people are involved in life groups or how many volunteers are serving and how many missionaries we have in the field. But Paul is basically saying these numbers can be misleading at times. Paul is not going to determine his own effectiveness. If he knew his blind spots, they wouldn't be blind spots. And yet he adds, my conscience is clear before you. I feel like I'm doing my best and doing my work honestly. And he says, my conscience is clear before my church, but my conscience isn't necessarily clear before God. And the reason he gives for that is pretty telling. And he says, the reason why my conscience isn't necessarily clear before God is, next slide, is that, one more, one more, Jordy, yeah, is that God doesn't just simply judge actions. God also judges motives. Ouch. That will keep you awake at night. (laughs) Now think about that for a moment in your life. What does it mean that God doesn't just judge what I do? God looks at the reason why I do what I do. And if we're being truthful, sometimes we do the right thing, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons, for selfish reasons. And I so relate to Paul when he said in Romans 7, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Anyone else relate to that? For me, in my role here at BBC, at its core, we boil it all down at its core, I'm here to serve you. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, because without him, I can do nothing, (laughs) I'm here to help you grow in your relationship with Christ and continually point you to him, point you to Jesus. And I love it. I absolutely love it, and I'm passionate about it. But when I'm feeling down on myself or lacking confidence or critiqued in some way that really hurts, sometimes, not always, and I'm getting really better at this, my default can be people-pleasing. I want to be all things to all people at all times for approval. You see, sometimes my motives are a mixture of pure and impure motives. But I love what Tim Keller, how Tim Keller put it. Next slide. He said, even my best and pure moments in service and worship still need to be covered by God's grace. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for his amazing grace, yeah? Paul is saying that with God's grace, God will sort this all out, and it can be easy for us to play armchair quarterback, for me to judge or you to judge or the community to judge how well someone else is doing something. Paul is saying that God is going to be the one who will ultimately judge us. Now, Paul does something interesting in verses 6 through 16. He contrasts this church's prideful perspective on where they think they are versus Paul and his weakness. And verse um, 6 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I have quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? Answer, none. What do you have that God hasn't given you? Answer, nothing. And if everything you have um, is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? In other words, he says, you've got gifts. This church has. You've got success, but you didn't bring that to yourself. God brought that to you. 
So don't boast like you are something special. This is God's grace on you and towards you. Now, Paul is going to get really sarcastic with them. (laughs) You can almost hear his frustration. And in verse 8, he says this. You think you've already everything you need. You think you are already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. In other words, you guys think that you don't need a spiritual leader or any spiritual guidance. You think you have it all figured out. And he says, I wish you really were reigning already, for we would be reigning with you. Now, Paul, in the next verses, is going to contrast their pride with the position he has taken as their spiritual leader. And he says in verse 9, Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display, like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Verse 10, He says, our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. Um, You are honored, but we are ridiculed. Even now we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn a living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Who does this sound like? And yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up into the present moment. Welcome to ministry. (laughs) I'm thinking, Paul, this isn't a great recruitment advertisement for interns. (laughs) Imagine that, you would be scaring them off. You see, the Corinthians view themselves as important kings. And Paul is saying, because these are the things that you value, I think that is the way you want me to be. You want a leader who is powerful and wise and important. But Paul portrays himself the opposite way. He's telling them, in essence, that ministry and service is difficult. You know this if you've ever tried to lead people, serve people, or love people. Parents know this, especially people who may not always want to be led, served, and loved. Many of you know how difficult it can be to pour into somebody else's life. And I know this because I can be hard to love, lead, and serve. And Paul portrays himself humbly like a servant that took the last place in line, like a servant willing to suffer like Christ suffered, and basically says, this is the way you ought to be. You want me to be powerful, important, wise, but I want you to be humble and service-orientated and willing to suffer like Jesus did. And I love this quote that I read in the commentary, honestly. Next slide. It says, the true test of a servant is how one responds when he or she is treated like one. (laughs) Yeah, ouch. You know, Paul could have taken a much more forceful approach because he did have a level of authority over the Corinthians. He could have been more boisterous or more charismatic. Um, And there were those in the church who wanted him to be that way because those were the values they valued in the culture. But Paul knows that those values in the culture um, aren't necessarily what Jesus values. And the quality that the culture values may not necessarily produce long and lasting fruit in their lives that help them mature in their faith. And these next verses here, it's here that we see Paul's heart towards the Corinthians. And he says in verse 14, 
He goes, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you only have one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ when I preached the good news to you. So I urge you to imitate me. Verse 17, that's why I've sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. Verse 18, some of you have become arrogant, thinking that I will not visit you again, but I will come, and soon, if the Lord lets me. And then I'll find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. Which do you choose then? Should I come with the rod to punish you or should I come with love and a gentle spirit? In essence, Paul is saying that if you walk with Jesus long enough, there will be people in your life who will help you along the way in your spiritual development. Some of them are going to be what Paul calls spiritual guides. And it might be a preacher, it might be a worship leader, it might be a podcaster, an author, or a blogger, or someone you watch on TV, or someone um, who you knew at an earlier stage in your life. And thank God for these people. Thank God for the gifts he's given them and their influence and impact that they've had. Paul says you're going to have many guides, but you're not going to have many fathers. Paul means is that these guides won't be there to navigate the complexities of faith in the real world. And they certainly won't turn their lives upside down um, to be with you when things fall apart. Yes, thank God for the guides who, have, who um, he has given you. But church, do not neglect the humility of the fathers and the mothers that God has placed in your life. They're to guide you through some of your most difficult moments you've had to face. Paul is like, I want to be your spiritual father. And I'm going to come to you in a different way, though. It's different than how you might expect. It may be different than what you want. And I'm going to lay down my rights for your benefit like any good parent would do. And I'm going to suffer personal loss for your benefit in order to see you grow up healthy and strong. And like any parent who's trying to make a point, he says, we can either do this the hard way or the easy way. Don't make me come back there. He goes, if I come to you the way you want me to come, loud and boisterous, charismatic, a great orator, but I don't care a whole lot about you as people. This is going to be hard for you. I want to come with a gentle spirit like a loving father. And maybe that won't seem as impressive to you, but I can deal with that because the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. And he's talking about the power of Jesus known through relationship. So that's a lot to take in, but what is the takeaway from today's passages? I think the main point that we could take away that applies to us is what it takes to be a good spiritual leader in someone's life. Now, author Patrick and speaker Patrick Glencioni says something similar from a business perspective. He says a good leader is someone who's hungry, humble, and smart. But the Apostle Paul would say what makes a good leader is three things, someone who's hungry, someone who is humble, and someone who is holy. See, in your journey, you will come across spiritual leaders who are just hungry. They want to build something impressive and be well thought of. Yes, they have 
they love Jesus in the mission, but their mindset is what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of it? They have a strong appetite, and sometimes they devour people in their path in order to get what they want. You see, they're just hungry. And other times you will come across other spiritual leaders who are, yes, hungry, but they're also humble. They, too, want to accomplish great things, but they also have a spirit of humility. You can tell that it's not just about them. They listen, they learn, they love. They're not perfect, and they don't pretend to be perfect. You can tell that success doesn't go to their head and failure doesn't go too quickly to their heart. And they are constantly growing. They're constantly looking more and more like Jesus in their leadership. And over time, you see their development and you see their growth because they are humble. But the best leaders <laughs> are the ones who are not just hungry, not just humble, but they're also holy. These leaders want to see great things happen. And they also have a spirit of humility. And they recognize that God is the final judge because they know that God is their final judge. And because of that, they may not always do what you want. They may not always respond the way you had hoped. But you can tell that they have the fear of the Lord in their life and that they are living to please God rather than man. Church, this is the type of leader Paul was. And though at times people got frustrated with him saying that you're not enough of this and you're not enough of that, this is the type of leader to imitate that you can follow. If I could have the band come out now. Paul says, it's the next slide. He says, I urge you then be imitators of me. <laughs> what a statement. Um, church, consider this verse for a moment. Is there anyone in your life who if they said to you, I'm imitating you, you're the one I'm looking to as my model, as what it looks like to follow Jesus. Would you be comfortable making this statement? Would you be comfortable saying, I urge you to be an imitator of me, because if you follow and model me, you are going to walk more closely with Jesus. Paul was like that. And Paul says, um, this is a kind of life I am trying to lead, and I want you to follow me in it. And I want to encourage you with a couple things as we close. I want to encourage you that if you have someone in your life like this, that you've been able to watch, maybe from afar and maybe sometimes up close, um, and you are imitating their lifestyle as you follow Christ, and they've been a spiritual mother or father to you, can I encourage you <laughs> to write a note to them this week? And if you don't have their address, yes, yeah, send them an email or a text or a phone call. But if you can, go real old school and write a letter and post it. <laughs> and thank them for being a spiritual, positive spiritual influence in your life. And after you have thanked them, I want you to pray and ask God. I want to encourage you in this. If other people are looking to me and they are trying to imitate me as I follow after Jesus, oh, God, Help me to lead them closer to you than further away. I'm so thankful that we have leaders like this in our midst, in our church and in our community. Young people, have a look around. There's gold here, <laughs> absolute gold. And I'm praying that God will grow us up to be this type of leader, and I'm praying that he will raise up more leaders like that who are hungry and humble and holy. 
not impressive and shallow, but instead humble and fruitful leaders. And if we have that type of leadership and build our life on it, not only will it be for our good, but will, it will also be for God's glory, for his fame, and for his renown. Amen? And amen. If you could stand as we worship our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Amen.